Yeah, one of my one of my employees recently did vacation uh, in L.A. and he was fishing outside of the port of Los Angeles. And he took a picture for me of what the port looked like. Now this is only three weeks ago. You can't believe the the tower of containers. They they are huge. The congestion has not improved. It has not. It may have even gotten worse. Welcome everyone to the Operation Automation Podcast by Omron, where we are talking all things factory automation. My name is Carrie Lee. I'm the product manager for Sysmac Studio, NJ NX Controllers, and NXIO. I've been with Omron for about two and a half years and have about 15 years of experience in automation. Sitting here with me is Kenny Heidel. Hi everyone, I'm Kenny Heidel and I'm a national account manager focusing on channel engagement. I've been with Omron for over three years now and have 12 years of combined factory and industrial automation experience. Kenny and I are neighbors at our Omron office and would often have conversations at the coffee machine or in the hallways where we would talk about products, new technologies and trends, and of course, the Chicago White Sox. We hope to recreate that time here in our podcast and share it with listeners so that you can learn along with us. So whether you are pouring yourself the first or fifth coffee of the day, driving to your first appointment, or walking the dog, we hope to help you start your day off right with a little fun, and hopefully you'll learn something new. So Kenny, today's episode is Air Supply Chain. I'm all out of parts. I'm so lost without you. (laughs) I'll have to check my my keys the next time for the next song, Carrie. But yes, we're uh, we're very excited uh, to have two of our supply chain experts on the podcast today. Uh, We have Julie Harvey and we have Brian Leeson. Welcome to Operation Automation. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kenny. And if you guys want to go ahead and just give us a little bit of your background, kind of how long you've been with Omron and and some of your experience for our listeners. Julie, why don't you go first? Okay. I actually just got my congratulations on five years letter in the mail. So So August marks for me five years with Omron. And I've had some some different responsibilities since I joined the company and all kind of leading back to the same place, which is pretty much supply chain, demand planning, forecasting, et cetera. And prior to that, I was with another industrial automation company for 18 years. Cool. Cool. And great. I'm Brian Leeson. I'm the vice president of operations for Omron Automation Americas, and I've been with the company coming up on six years. I have a total of about 30 years in the automation industry and have had really assignments that uh, almost go the whole gamut from marketing to manufacturing to supply chain and operations and sales support. So I've had a chance to see a lot of different parts of the how the business runs. Fantastic. Well, we're happy to have you guys and we got some got some fun questions and, you know, we got some other questions that we can we can hit you guys with, but I'll let uh, I'll let Carrie kick it off with the the fun questions. Sure. So probably the most hard hitting question you're going to get today: What is your go to takeout food order, Julie? All right, my go to takeout food order is definitely Thai because that's something that the kids and I all agree on. And we stick with the fresh spring rolls, Tom Yum soup, and like yellow curry, sometimes drunken noodle, we mix it up. And my son loves duck noodle soup. 
So always duck noodle soup for him. <laughs> nice. I've never had duck noodle soup. Duck it's good. so good. Yeah. It's like a clear broth, but with duck in it. Yeah, it's good. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, tasty. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So I'm, I'm not nearly <laughs> that exciting. You know, I, I live in Wisconsin. Uh, a carry out on a Friday fish fry is a, almost a, a staple for many, especially during the pandemic. Um, my second choice would be uh, we have a really great uh, pizza joint in town and their carry out is phenomenal. So those two. Are, Brian, are for, for those of us from New England, what's fish fry entail? What type of fish? fish fry would be probably either a perch or uh, could be a cod. Okay. Most of the time it would be deep fried and would probably come with fries and coleslaw. Yeah. Yum. Maybe some cheese curds, right? I, you know, you can get cheese curds sometimes as an alternate to the uh, French fries for sure. <laughs> really? Yeah, if you really want to stick your neck out and get some really good <laughs> Nothing grease. says Wisconsin like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to be a little sad, Brian, if you didn't mention anything that involved cheese. <laughs> All right, second hard-hitting question. Uh, so if you have to get a lot of work done, Julie, what is your favorite music to put on, to put in your headphones and really crush through some work? Yeah, I'm pretty boring. I, no matter what I have to do, it's always the same music unless I have a 14-year-old in the car and they mandate what I need to be listening to. But if it's if it's up to me, I'm always listening to folk music. And um, I'm actually going to see Brandy Carlisle at Tanglewood, which is a very famous nice. venue here in New England, in two weeks. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. So it's always folk for me. Just something mellow helps me focus. Nice. Nice, nice. What about you, Brian? What's your favorite music to? Yeah, I'm on? a contemporary Christian rocker, so um, you know, not hard, not hard Christian rock, but you know, kind of that middle of the road, um, and uh, yeah, almost for any, any time, that really gets uh, it's good for me. Nice, nice. Puts you in a good uh, mental mindset. Gets me, gets me good mentally. It does. Yep. Okay, and now the last tough question of the day. So, Julie, what's your favorite hobby? These are all the tough ones. I hope they're all just this hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite hobby um, is gardening, is how I spend most of my time in working in the yard in the summers. And then in the winters, we're skiers. Because if you're not a skier in New Hampshire, you don't have much to do in the wintertime. So those are the seasonal hobbies around. What about shoveling? Yeah, shoveling, shoveling's a, a major oh. pastime out here as well. Yeah, that's a that's a one A one B type thing, yeah. right? <laughs> but put that in the category of hobby. But yeah, there's plenty of that that goes on. Yep. Um, so for me, um, I would say kind of first and foremost, anything that has to do with my grandchildren. I have six grandchildren from the ages of two all the way up to ten. They are in, involved in a lot of sporting goods. So attending any of their sporting goods. But if I can really get their time, I would love to have them in my fishing boat with me catching fish. That would be my most favorite thing to do. See, now we've come full circle. Brian's favorite food is fish fry. Right. Yep. It <laughs> ties together. There's yeah. a fish theme here. There's a Beautiful. fish theme. Mm, yeah. I actually, you know, and I'm very competitive. So we actually have a, a summer long competition. We have a board. We're keeping track. Every oh, wow. kid is keeping track of the fish they catch. There will oh, be nice. cash, cash payouts at the end. Whoa, that's incentive. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So what kind of fish do you guys catch? Bass, walleye, um, muskie. Mm. 
Are those the giant ones? They Muskies? are huge, very They're huge, toothy, right? Very yeah. toothy. Yeah, the biggest I've caught on this lake would be a forty-incher, yep. um, or uh, we'll also do some panfish, perch, bluegills. The fact that I knew that those were big fish is evidence that I listen to everything you say. <laughs> because there's no reason why I would have known that otherwise. <laughs> so. Getting a little serious here, but Julie and Brian, uh, Kenny and I are both super excited to have you guys here because, you know, I think it's a hot topic, whether you're, you know, looking in our industry or, you know, just walk in the stores of the grocery store. Things have kind of changed from the pandemic and it's just not as easy to get things as it used to. So we're excited um, to have you guys talk to us. I feel like I've learned a lot every time we have uh, internal presentations with you guys. So I guess one of the things I've picked up on is that, you know, it kind of seems like we're in a little bit of a perfect storm here as far as like a confluence of events and factors that have happened. And I guess, can you guys kind of explain to our listeners about what exactly are some of the things that led us to the position we're in now? Sure. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. maybe kick this off and I know Julie will add, add to sure. it. Sure. I think, you know, it, it certainly starts with the pandemic. I think that's the right place to start the conversation. And, and a couple reasons why. You mentioned that it didn't hit any one specific industry, but what happened or what actually has happened is the, the strain on labor resources in both factories, any kind of factory, and logistics, any form of logistics from rail to sea to air. If you can imagine, if you're operating any of those or any factory and if your labor pool becomes extremely random, the availability of that labor pool, and you can think of the effect the pandemic has had. In some places, countries literally shut down factories mm -hmm. for indefinite periods of time. In other cases, they came up with policies that would allow their factories to work, but they might limit how many people could be in a building uh, at any given time. Of course, they would also limit how close they could be to each other. And then if they came down with any form of symptoms that would keep them from work for probably a minimum of 10 days. So all of that randomness around labor has been probably the biggest impact for any industry, whether you're making toilet paper or you're making integrated circuits, um, that um, has had a huge impact. Now, when you, you put on top of that, that same kind of random availability of labor for ocean freight, Mm -hmm. uh, cargo ships mm -hmm. to to man the ports, to fly the airplanes that carry freight. And if you consider the fact that, as you know, the airlines cut way back on the number of flights, every flight, every domestic flight that occurs, any any commercial flight, there's always some amount of freight that's on there in addition to your luggage. Well, when you cut down the number of flights by a huge factor, that means there's a lot less airplanes to put freight on. So, so those that whole pandemic's been a huge thing. But you know, of course, the pandemic's not enough. Uh, you remember the the huge snowstorm we had in Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. literally shut down the plastics industry for a month, and and a huge part of the world's plastics come out of that area, and those factories were damaged. They were down due to the storms. We still see a shortage of resin material for plastics that's wow. hampering the uh, the world. There's been huge floods in China that have had dramatic impact on their factories, uh, as well as Europe. So it's not just one thing. There's been cyber attacks. I know. I mean, even that <laughs> yeah. cyber attacks specifically 
on certain uh, ports, Cape Town had a major problem recently with a cyber attack. Uh, and then I think all of us might remember that large ship that was sideways in the Suez Canal, right. you know, yes. where a huge amount of the world's freight travels through that. So you think about all of those, and those are, I'm just mentioning a few. Every one of those is affecting our ability to get parts, to get product. Uh, yeah, it's been the perfect storm. And, and today, when we think that we're sort of coming out of it, we're still seeing the repercussions in the sense that we might have the opportunity to become vaccinated here and in most developing countries. But a lot of the staff and the people who work on the sailors that work on cargo ships are from mm -hmm. developing countries. Mm -hmm. So a good majority of the staff on those ships aren't able to access the vaccine as easily as we are here, which means that they're not able to get off of the vessel. They're not able to, to leave. Once they're on the, the ship, they're not able to get off in the port. And then we've also heard of some extreme examples where contractually and for safety reasons, they can only be on those vessels for so many months and days at a time and where they're getting gridlocked essentially um, and having to anchor outside some of these ports of entry. The staff are going too long. It's the same as when you're on an airplane and the crew needs rest. Mm -hmm. In some instances, mm -hmm. we've heard examples of container ships actually having to turn around and go back from whence they came because the staff isn't able, the crew isn't able to stay on the ship any longer. Yeah, and if you think about it, and so some of when we do some ocean freight from some of our common Asian uh, locations, you, I'll just round number. You can assume that that takes 30 days, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, for that ship to leave Hong Kong and get to uh, the port of Los Angeles. Uh, though it's been tripled, it's been up over 90 days in some cases. And so, as yep. Julie said, it starts to create problems with their staffing. And um, in some cases, one of the reasons why it's taking so long is because the ports were so clogged and congested. The boats yeah. had to just sit out there and anchor and wait. Just sit there and turn. wait. Yep. Just waiting their turn. Before the pandemic, depending on where the ship was leaving from, from one of our Asian factories, whether it was Japan, China, or Indonesia, we were anywhere from 30, 32 days to 45 was our longest. And like Brian said, I mean, we're, we're three months plus now in a lot of instances. Yeah. One of my, one of my employees recently did vacation uh, in LA and he was fishing outside of the port of Los Angeles. And he took a picture for me of what the port looked like. Now, this is only three weeks ago. You can't believe the the tower of containers, the piles. <laughs> they they are huge. The congestion has not improved. It has not. It may have even gotten worse. Um, I was just reading something that was printed. Um, a freight something. I was, was just on a website not long ago. It said that August is congestion plus was yeah. what the title of the article was. So this is basically the worst any of the ports on the West Coast have seen. This is the critical mass right now, mm -hmm. August. Wow. And then doesn't that trickle out because now there's not enough shipping containers? People are like... Well, you think about it, right? There. I mean, there's there's limits to everything. So there's so many shipping containers full, piled up in these <laughs> ports, or sitting on the ships waiting to come into the ports because there's no room for any more containers to be offloaded. Yeah. There's not enough uh, people to man the yard to take those containers and move them onto rail. So yes, the the number of containers is becoming short, which it, it's just, 
it's crazy the situation we're in right now. And, 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 and maybe the worst part about it, Carrie, is is not so much how long it's taking. It's the amount of uncertainty that it's creating. Mm. Because when these ships are just anchored and our partners are not able to give us good tracking information or tell us with 100% certainty when those materials are going to be received in, it's it's the not knowing that has made this situation much worse than just the longer lead times. You know, when mm -hmm. it comes to anything, if you can say the lead time is 120 days and mean it with absolute certainty that it will be 120 days. I mean, it, nobody likes it. No one wants to hear that. But if that's the truth, then you plan to that. Mm -hmm. The hard part about this is where in some instances, I mean, we've moved away from ocean now. We'll get into that more later. But in some instances, we're just, I don't want to call it an educated guess, but we're going on historical transit times and basing our estimates off of that because we're not able to get with any amount of specificity from our carriers exactly when we can expect the materials to arrive. Yeah, they're saying, I read a study the other day, that the data accuracy of things going through the ocean freight kind of logistics cycle, which is really on a boat, off a boat, in a um, port, onto rail or onto a truck, and then eventually gets to your location. The data that is available to give you an insight as to where your stuff is and when it might arrive is about 30% accurate right now, 30%, which is right where Julie was saying, you don't know, even the next day, you're not even 100% certain. You might think those containers are showing up at your warehouse. They may not. Uh, and it might not be just by a day or two. It could be by a week's or month's difference. It's been we didn't realize how poor that part of the industry is in their data mm. until we got to this crisis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing because it was very like clockwork before this. It was quite reliable, surprisingly reliable. And of course, with this pandemic has turned everybody on their head. And we've learned that the data around uh, port, the sea lanes and the ports and all that is so poor. It makes it very difficult for us to help our customers understand. And if you think about it, if your product is sitting for 90 days between you know, leaving the factory and getting to your warehouse, that's a long time to have a customer wondering when shipments are gonna actually arrive. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think uh, obviously another thing contributing to the confusion, right, in our industry is people are, you know, you have your consumer mindset where you may purchase from, let's say, giant logistics company one, right. and your stuff arrives on a truck the next day, right? There's a lot of people that think that should, you know, if, if one company can do it, then everybody should be able to do it. And it's not a, it's definitely not a peanut butter approach on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great comment, Kenny. I think we all aspire for it to be like that. Well, I mean, just ask the auto companies. They'll tell you that that's not how it <laughs> yeah. works. Yeah. Ask the auto companies how they're yeah. doing. And if you tried to go buy a, a car. That might be how it works for a string of twinkle lights that you want to hang on your porch, but it's not how it works for industrial Correct. components. Correct. It's not how when it you works have, for cars right now. Yeah. Yeah. When you have 800 vendors that make the same little trinket right? <laughs> that gives you the ability to, to leverage well, that. And to that point, I mean, some of the issues that we're facing right now have to do with part shortages. And a lot of those part shortages are our custom. 
you know, mm-hmm. like Brian said, I mean, we've seen we've seen shortages, certainly for things like injection molded plastic housings, you know, for our sensors, et cetera. Um, but we've seen we've and that you could consider that like a pretty common part shortage. But we've we've also faced challenges with more complicated part shortages that can't easily be sourced from a second supplier. Absolutely. So obviously, with the the current situation being extremely dynamic, you know, Brian, you you rattled off half a dozen different contributing factors. And pretty much on a weekly basis, things are changing and what you guys are seeing from our suppliers and our factories. What do you think the biggest contribution now is currently as we sit today to a lot of that variability? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There's a couple of things that I think about. Uh, One certainly is, I'll call it the tail wagging the dog. Mm -hmm. The volatility of demand is Mm -hmm. so crazy right now. Mm-hmm. That that in itself is affecting the source, you know, the factories themselves. And so yeah. if you think about it, I've heard examples within our industry and certainly within our company where during the last six months, we've seen as much as three times the normal demand. OK, mm-hmm. well, what does that do then to the factories and then their decisions on how to address that demand? Because I, what I will tell you is most of the time that demand comes in. And people just want it now. They're not, mm-hmm. whether they need it now or not, they're not going to tell you that. It's like when you went to the grocery store and you bought that huge pile of toilet paper when the <laughs> started. People knew that you weren't going to use that all this week. But that's none of their business. You bought as much as you thought you needed, and maybe you still have some of that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're seeing that with our customers. But that trickles to the behavior of the factory because then they don't know for sure what's really important unless somebody's screaming and hollering. Mm -hmm. And then you end up consuming materials and components to fulfill that high spike demand. And it's kind of self-fulfilling at that point because now you might end up getting orders that are actually urgent and maybe Mm -hmm. you've already burned up some of your capability, your capacity. So, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing. And the other, of course, is this logistics infrastructure. It seems to, there are some weeks when they're better and other weeks when it's bad again. And I think, as Julie said, it can have a lot to do with crew availability and continued pandemic. And we know manufacturing capacity has been very sporadic. Uh, You know, Malaysia most recently, they've nearly shut themselves down again. Uh, and when that happens and those factories shut down, it only takes a couple days and everybody in the world feels it. So it mm-hmm. it has been dynamic and very sporadic. <laughs> Japan recently had a typhoon. It's all of those little events when you when you only have one of them occur during a period of time, the world could deal with it. But when you mm-hmm. have these constant more than one major thing happening, yeah. it's creating this huge volatility and um, it's making it really difficult for us to understand how to even react. Yeah, and and I'll just add to that. Like Brian said, we've seen very strong, we've seen a strong resurgence in sales, specifically May, June, July were really big months, which is great. Everybody likes big orders. We've seen a real return to project work. Mm -hmm. Um, We're getting some nice bill of materials in, you know, forward looking, trying to plan with some of our key accounts. And, And that's all a very positive indicator 
and in some instances, we're able to recognize what is project work and, and what the real requirements are as far as the timeline is concerned. But then for a good portion of that business, we really don't know what's what, like Brian said. So mm -hmm. you don't know how much of it is, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it panic buying, but mm -hmm. buying, you know, beyond what a normal inventory level would be for a channel partner or for a region um, in an effort to buffer against some of the longer lead times that our customers are suffering right now and versus what is a true need, right? So the more we dig ourselves into the situation as far as lengthening lead times are concerned and unstable deliveries, you know, the harder it becomes to make that distinction between what is the true priority and what is just trying to cover for that significantly longer lead time. Yeah. I can tell you, having had responsibility for the Omron Delta Tau manufacturing, some of it is also based on when you get shipments in of stuff, right? So you might go for a month or a month and a half where you're waiting on some critical parts that that used to have a five-week lead time and now they have a six-month lead time. Mm -hmm. And when they come in, you go like gangbusters to get product built mm -hmm. and shipped, and then you're out again. And it's it's kind of a feast or famine phenomena that we're dealing with. All of that creates this level of volatility that kind of keeps occurring. And I think we're all kind of anxious to have that be in the rearview mirror because it's really, it puts a lot of strain on in the entire organization from manufacturing all the way to sales. It does, yeah. But I, I will say the one thing that we're really holding to and we continue to is the FIFO as far as fulfillment of orders is concerned. So mm -hmm. we are continuing to honor customers who place their orders in the sequence in which they were placed. And that's mm -hmm. something that we feel pretty strongly about. So I'm sure that you guys can imagine there's a number of different ways to approach that, right? As far mm -hmm. as the importance of a customer is concerned or the size of an account is concerned. We we look after our all of our customers in the sense that folks who got their order in, those orders will be fulfilled and serviced in the order that they were received. So we're, we're trying to hold to that as, as a One America's region. And just because I know my mom does listen to our podcast, FIFO is first in, first out. So. <laughs> That's right, Carrie. Thanks, and Carrie. hi to Carrie's mom. Yes. <laughs> and secondly, I'm super excited that we were able to make it back to toilet paper, too, because I'm glad that that could, uh, that could reemerge well, in conversation. Well, you can't talk about the pandemic without talking about toilet paper, so I'm glad <laughs> that Brian went there. Yeah. Fond memories. <laughs> So I heard, Brian, you said, um, you know, we're trying to put things in the rear view mirror. And when I hear the updates from you guys, I do hear a lot of positives and I am um, optimistic for what's going uh, moving forward. So would you mind for our listeners just kind of talking about some of the things that Omron's doing to navigate all these challenges you were telling us about? Yeah, I'm going to let Julie start and I'll follow on after she makes a few comments. That's OK. Go sure. ahead, Julie. Yeah. Well, one of the first things that we did a few months back was that as soon as ocean freight lead times became what they were becoming, we made the decision to move to air effective immediately. This was it was three months ago now um, where we have been bringing over I mean, non-stock products always came via air because a non-stock product or a non-stock order always has a customer standing right behind it, right? There's no mm -hmm. other reason why that part would be on order. So we always brought non-stock over via air freight, but we were and had been for about the year and a half prior converting to ocean freight for our stock replenishment orders. We've moved away from that entirely. So all orders, regardless of whether or not it's a standard or non-standard material, are coming via air now. That's one of the first and, and, and most swift changes that we made. 
Another thing that we're doing right now is we are kind of freezing, I'll say, our stock portfolio for this mm -hmm. fiscal year in the sense that it's typically planning practice to reevaluate your stock portfolio quarterly um, and to make stock to non-stock conversions as appropriate. As a team, we've committed to not doing that this year for sales so that they can develop a certain level of confidence around our stock portfolio and feel good that if they are recommending a particular configuration to a customer, they're going to be able to continue to support that as a stock product throughout the balance of the year. It's not going to get, you know, the rug won't be pulled out from under them, so to speak. That's also in an effort for us to get our safety stock levels stabilized amongst all this chaos, right? It's in everybody's best interest to just hold steady. The only time we're moving parts to non-stock right now is if they're going obsolete, essentially. Other changes that we've made is we're stocking really aggressively right now. So, I mean, everybody's familiar with the idea of a safety stock level. Of course, the longer that your lead time is and you need to plan supply inside of that lead time, the mm -hmm. more material you're gonna have en route. Mm -hmm. Right. So as we continue to lengthen our lead times, which is yet another point that we're doing lead time accuracy, but I'll get to that. Um, as our lead times get longer, then the flow of material inside those longer lead times increases. Right. We've also increased our safety stock now to support all three regions. So I, I don't think it's any secret to anybody on this call anyways, or to anyone listening, that since we've moved our warehouse to Dallas, to the Dallas-Fort Worth facility, we are consolidating the demand for US, Canada, and Mexico into that one warehouse. We made the decision before we moved into that warehouse to not stage it. In other words, we set our safety stocks for that facility based on the needs of all three regions. But yet we we haven't moved Canada yet and we haven't moved Mexico yet. So right now the only region being serviced out of Dallas is US, but we've set mm -hmm. the safety stock levels to support U.S., Canada, Mexico. So that just organically brought up the amount of inventory that we were carrying at Dallas. It's not right to paint too rosy a picture, but the warehouse moving at the time that it did in some ways worked from an inventory perspective. Um, I want to be careful that I don't say it works <laughs> to our benefit in all regards, but from an inventory perspective, mm -hmm. because we had to go ahead and set those safety stock levels to open the warehouse, right? We had to, of course, build up inventory before we moved from mm -hmm. Illinois to Dallas. So we had that first bump in inventory for our initial inventory order. Then we moved what was left in Illinois to Dallas. So we had that inventory transfer. And then at the same time, we still had a ton of material on ocean and we had higher safety stock levels. So we were in some strange ways better positioned than we would have been if we hadn't mm -hmm. moved because we wouldn't mm -hmm. have been making those adjustments otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so those are all some of the things. I mean, I mean, there's a number of other small things that we're trying to do as far as internal communication is concerned. We are really trying to be as transparent as possible with our folks in sales to help them understand exactly which materials we're in trouble with, which mm -hmm. we are in a borderline trouble situation, and, and which we're in the clear. So I put a monthly file to a SharePoint that really helps sales understand, uh, oh, excuse me, a weekly file, I post it once a week, that helps our internal sales folks understand if they're going to recommend a certain material to a customer, what kind of inventory position are we in specifically for that part? And if they need to, to select another configuration. So 
you know, we're really trying to to bridge the gap even more so than we normally would during our regular monthly cadence to communicate with sales and help them have a big picture understanding of where we sit. Mm-hmm. And I can I'll add a few just a few extra items to Julie's list because that's already a lot. Uh, one, I, I'll make it pretty obvious. We have taken very, very strict measures within our factories to help prevent the spread of the virus within the factory. And so that goes without saying in, in North America for sure, but really all of our factories, the company has been very, very strict at imposing very good precautions and measures to help try to make sure that if you come to work, you're going to be safe. And, mm-hmm. and I will tell you, as much as even as some of this stuff has been mandated by government, there are a lot of folks that had not heeded some of those words and were not as cautious. And as a result, had situations where they were losing half or more of their staffs at a time due to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we've been very serious and um, and that's helped us keep our factories running at pretty good uh, operation tempo. The other thing we have certainly done is trying to take advantage of some non-traditional sources for components. You know, we talk about some of these components, the um, uh, semiconductors have been really in short supply. And, and what we've seen is some of the large corporations, not distributors, but corporations have bought some of these very common or popular mi- microchips. And now they're making them available on the market for the rest of us to buy from them. Wow. But you got to know where to find them. You got to you know got to know who to ask. Got to know and Unfortunately, guy. <laughs> and you got to have a deep pocket because yeah. some of our most common chips that we use in some of our PLCs, we're having to pay six, seven, eight times the normal price for those, mm-hmm. and we're buying them from non-traditional sources through brokers that have a way of finding them. That would not, that's very abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, We've had yeah. some critical sensor products that we've had to use that method to get the, the electronics for them. And we're literally selling those products almost at a loss because we've had to pay such a huge price for those chips. But we put a premium on shipping product, even if it's at a loss, over not shipping at all. Those are some of the things that came to mind in addition to what Julie mentioned. And we do have a bunch of our factories are working on additional burst capacity, mm-hmm. additional investments in equipment. And there is a longer term plan to address having multiple sites that can produce the same product so that, you know, if one factory gets hit hard with whether it's a, right. a, a pandemic or whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, some kind of natural disaster that we have some backup that we can use. Yeah. And there, there was actually one thing that I neglected to mention, not from a component perspective, but from a finished good perspective. We are working as, as best we can on inventory sharing across regions in this difficult mm-hmm. time. So um, I'll say specifically with our counterparts in Europe, we have a really strong working relationship with the OEE team. And we just had a meeting this morning where we're providing one another lists, I'll call them wish lists, <laughs> and, 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 and really doing our best to have a nice reciprocal relationship where we're able to support each other. If we have excess greater than six months worth of supply, we're saying, sure, 
you know, nobody knows what the future is going to bring. We might need them, <laughs> but we're, mm-hmm. we're sparingly, but, uh, but trying to be as generous as we can, because our friends in Europe are very generous with us. So, so we're working as hard as we can to move material around in a way that's smart and meets the most customer needs. That's the benefit of a global company, right? Yeah. Awesome. It yep. should be. Yes. Yep. So. I just had, sorry, I had a quick follow-up. You mentioned that we switched to air and previously C was so reliable. Do you think that we will get back to the reliability of shipping by C and go back to that? Or is this a whole new paradigm shift? What do you think happened to air when we all, do you think we were the only company that switched to air? (laughs) Yeah, the problem with switching to air is that we did not have an original idea there. (laughs) So so air lead times were up to what C lead times were previous. Just because they couldn't get on a plane. Yeah. Yeah. So, so air lead times went from five days to 30 days, Yeah. but 30 days is better than 90 days. Yeah. <laughs> now the cost of air is seven to eight times the cost yeah. of C. So you can imagine all of these going through people's minds, but th- there, there's, still, there's still a shortage of airplanes and crews, and that mm-hmm. will probably exist. They're saying that could exist beyond 2022. Many have said that the number of airplanes in service, both from a freight and a commercial perspective, will not be back to normal levels, pre-pandemic levels, until 2023. You do create another problem. When you take everything off of the ocean and put it on an aircraft, we've seen dramatic increases in the lead times of resulting in air. And that's a double-edged sword, because if you remember... All of our non-stock products come via air, and so now, mm-hmm. and those typically have already a manufacturing lead time associated with them. And now, if you add, let's say, three more weeks of logistics to it, that's a long time for somebody to wait. You know, it's mm-hmm. one thing if your stock replenishment order is coming in, but when you're, you're shipping a product that a customer's ordered ten weeks ago, you know, they're pretty anxious to get it. Mm-hmm. So. Sure. Great question. That's a great yeah. follow-up question. There's yeah, been some- it is. I mean, and 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 ideally, I mean, we had been moving in that direction, Carrie. We had been moving toward ocean freight, which was relatively reliable, and to be mm-hmm. honest, was working pretty well. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't without its set of unique challenges, but but it was working. Um, and and the cost avoidance there for the company is, like Brian said, significant enough that it makes sense to move back to that. But we're in a position right now where. And I, Brian talks about this a lot. We have to control the things that we can control sure. because there are so many things right now that we simply can't. So when we can make choices like maybe right now isn't the best time to move the Mexico warehouse and transfer that inventory from Mexico to Dallas, we make sure. decisions like that. When we can make decisions like sticking with air freight until ocean freight stabilizes, we're making decisions like that. This is really the time to control the things that we have control over. Ultimately, we'd like to go back to ocean because it's it's, it's better for everyone. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's like some good life advice. Focus <laughs> on what you can <laughs> yeah. control, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly, exactly. It's just amazing to think that, you know, you can go to an airport and probably get on a flight, you know, reasonably anywhere within the, the continental United States. But to think that air freight from different factories is almost up to a 30-day lead time is is you know like you have to almost take your pre-pandemic hat off right and say i have to forget about everything i used to know and just operate on what like like julie said what what can you control now 
based on information you have. Yeah, and the, you know those air hubs, they look like the port of Los Angeles, the piles and piles and piles of product waiting to get put on that airplane, you know, because there's a limited number of crews, a limited number of flights. And when everybody decides that the ocean freight is too long, of course, you can't just come up with air crews and more airplane, you know. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting dilemma that we're kind of faced with. And um, like Julie said, everybody's feeling this, you know, like we're decisions we're making are similar decisions other companies are making. And they're trying to do the right things to take care of their customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the whole inventory uh, advantage of moving our warehouses, you know, that put a strain on our factories during the pandemic because they had to build a bunch of stock orders for us. During that time frame, the raw materials and the parts were not nearly as short. This is kind of what's weird about this. And the reason I believe is there was a global inventory of those raw materials and those parts. And that first year of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it ate through that entire supply chain of inventory. Mm -hmm. And now we're paying the piper in this second year, Mm -hmm. the start of the second year of the pandemic where the factories have not been able to keep up with the demand. And there were probably some hoarding going on along the way. And um, yeah, it's... And the other uh, thing that it's done, right, is, I mean, forecasting and sales and operations planning, demand planning in general, it is the, the front end, right? It's the front lines of the global supply chain. Being able to anticipate consumer buying behavior, being mm-hmm. able to anticipate what people are going to want, in what time period, right, and in what quantity, is really key to the entire global supply chain, right, being that that ability to anticipate. We lost that when consumer behind, buying behavior completely shifted because the way that we live changed in what felt like the flip of a switch, right? Mm-hmm. Literally, the way that we exist on the planet in almost every regard changed. And the need shifted so dramatically, and there was no planning for that, right? So mm-hmm. it was like the impact wasn't felt immediately. I mean, we all know when, like, you know, that big company that you were talking about, Kenny, even, mm-hmm. like, lead times from them were a little bit long, and that was when you knew the world was truly ending, right? Yeah. You could no longer get next day delivery. That's how yep. we knew. But That's when he started building his rocket ship. Right, yep. that's that's when we all got our, our root <laughs> made, made organized. out of toilet yeah. paper. Right? Um, but, but it was almost like because the, the, the supply chain was already primed and those finished goods were already there to a certain extent sitting and waiting. But once that got depleted, it's like the rest of the funnel, you know, it couldn't catch up. So it's, it's a strange time because it feels to us like we should be in the recovery period right now, but as consumers, right. Mm-hmm. But like for some of those raw materials and like we keep saying for component materials, we're not, you know, we're feeling like the domino effect of that surge in demand. Yeah. Companies going to have to be a lot more agile. I mean, and they're going to need to, I know you had a question about data, but we're going to have to be able to use data and be able to make decisions faster. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for sure is one of the things and being able to check yourself, meaning you can't wait every six months to check your forecast to see if it's right. You know, you're going to have to do things on a monthly basis. You're going to have to have a lot of data, and you're going to have to be willing to make decisions in a more agile way mm-hmm. so that you don't find yourself wishing you would have decided that sooner. Right? I think 
that's going to be one of the biggest challenges from a supply chain standpoint, from company standpoint, is some of these things that are happening. Yes, it's the perfect storm right now. I get that, but we don't know what next year is going to bring. Maybe we, maybe the pandemic won't be a big deal, but we'll have more natural disasters occurring. I, I don't know, but companies are going to have to be have the tools and the data and then the wherewithal to make decisions faster. And then maybe lastly, and it's it's limit it's part of the supply chain, and that is from a manufacturing standpoint, companies are going to need to have more burst capacity. Mm-hmm. You can't just rely on the you know we're going to grow four percent every year, yeah. and you know, and that's how a lot of companies you know business models look. And then when business goes up two x for the next two months or three months, they have no way to deal with it. And we're we're just as guilty as the next company. And th- mm-hmm. there's going to have to be more flexibility within the manufacturing space, and you know, and maybe some of that is automation, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we'd like to think that, but some of that is going to be maybe companies have to plan for more available capacity mm-hmm. when you have this volatile kind of environment that we're in. And I think some companies have really allowed. Uh, for much tighter, you know, uh, uh, available capacity is is more in line with re- the current demand and doesn't have anything extra. And mm-hmm. then they and then they're constantly trying to catch up. And you know, many companies are like that right now. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of thinking about like I'm going to plan my production capacity based on what I know I have, right? And I don't want to go any farther because I don't want to invest in the event that that doesn't work, right? And if you have a lot of labor you can't just have that labor sitting around unpaid. Mm-hmm. Now, can you can you burst that labor? You know, you know, one of the problems we're having in North America today with some of the mandates and the and the unemployment extensions is even if you wanted to have more labor, you can't get it today. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing that from our suppliers and we're hearing that from some of our customers and, and even we're having that challenge a little bit. If you're going to rely on that, you better make sure it's available. And you know, mm-hmm. there were unforeseen circumstances where all of a sudden labor was not even available. And then, boy, now you're really uh, in a pickle in terms of having that uh, ability to to burst to the demand. Mm-hmm. Julie, yeah. you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll add that just from a like back office planning perspective, as far as the finished goods are concerned, things that are becoming a lot more apparent that we already knew is that really tight collaboration with sales and marketing. So marketing in the form of, I'll give the example of the core product program, stock what you sell, sell what you stock, really Mm -hmm. trying to drive buying behavior toward our most common configurations. That's becoming, it's becoming more apparent than ever that that's going to be key to success, right? And right Mm -hmm. now our stock portfolio is 2000 pieces greater than it was before we moved. So because, I mean, it goes without saying, when we combine the demand of the three regions, we went from about 4,200 planned finished goods as stock products to we're a little up over 6,000 right now. Mm -hmm. So really focusing on the bread and butter of the portfolio and trying to drive buying behavior in that direction that requires tight collaboration with marketing. I know you guys are both dialed into that. Mm -hmm. And then from a sales and operations planning perspective, the work that we're doing on forecasting and anticipating our customer needs through the AON process and through our monthly demand consensus reviews is becoming increasingly more important because, you know, obviously it goes without saying that in a time like this, it's even more critical 
to be able to understand what the customer's needs are going to be in some instances before we even have the order in hand, right? But to do that really tight upfront planning. And we are doing that with some of our G10 accounts now where we have once a week meetings or once every two week meetings specifically to talk about forecast for that account. And sales was never so willing to do that as they are right now. <laughs> because if that hour is going to make it so you're more successful in meeting your customers' delivery expectations, you'll take that hour. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of going back to what you guys said before, as far as like the customer probably feels pretty empowered to have that knowledge as well, right? So so it's it's a two-way street as far as, you know, give me the information so I can adjust and plan. And then at the same time, the customer's thinking the same thing. Yeah. We've seen mm -hmm. that some of our best customers have placed orders on us for products that they'll want shipped 14 and 18 months from now. Oh, wow. Now that is not very normal that mm -hmm. they would give us that much warning. But we're seeing more of that. Uh, and I think what they're saying is, is I'm pretty sure I'm going to, I know I'm going to need these. I'm going to get in line early because Julie mm -hmm. talked about FIFO. Now, granted, we may not, we're not going to ship those products any earlier than the customer asked for them. But having that forewarning and certainty so we can make sure we're getting enough of the raw materials mm -hmm. in advance, especially when some of these lead times are now. I've seen some of the lead times on our components for the Delta Tau products. I saw one that was listed at 99 weeks from our supplier. 99 wow. weeks. And is that just because you can't put three digits in the cell? I, I guess. <laughs> um, so, so customers are getting smart about that, and, and uh, they're getting their orders in earlier when they can because they're like, look, I, I want to get my, point, my spot in line. And I... It's really wise. It's wise to do that under these circumstances. When we get back to normal, maybe that's not as necessary. But right yeah. now, under the current environment, we keep telling our best customers and our distributors, put your orders in early. Don't wait to the last minute because the last minute is going to be really hard. There's never been a better time for blanket orders. Yeah. Yep. So keywords, keywords moving forward in supply chain, I would say, are agility and plan, 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 plan. Plan, 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 and more plan. Yeah, and, and that was, I mean, you guys know, I mean, this is a direction that we were already moving in as the supply chain management group, um, but all of the volatility and all of the change and the disruption that we've seen over the last year and a half has just really underlined the importance of it. You know, when everything's just kind of clicking along, SNOP is a nice to have, demand planning is a nice to have, <laughs> but when everything's slightly tossed like it is right now, it just becomes more, more and more important. Mm-hmm. So lastly, the one question I have, if you guys had one small glimmer, and if you don't, that's okay, one small glimmer of hope, it could even be, you know, like a new moon, right? Um, if you've seen anything that kind of shows you, you know, puts you in more of a positive state of mind, I know we've put a lot of measures in place, and, and all of that is fantastic. Just from your perspective, looking at the market and the industries that we're serving are you are you seeing any glimmer of hope or just kind of we're in the trenches right now and uh, it's too early to tell kenny i'll take that one for you so early on maybe a couple months ago there were folks suggesting that maybe this semiconductor shortage would would be over by late summer and that's one of those bigger ones because it touches a lot of industries. And if you think of the whole 5G movement and all that, mm -hmm. some of the same chips that are going into those 5G phones go to go into PLCs. They go into your flat screens in your in your in your car. 
in, in your computer. You know, so that market, there was discussion about a recovery by late summer, early fall. But mm-hmm. I read a recent article as late as yesterday where the experts are saying that was too optimistic. In all likelihood, it will be middle of next year wow. from a calendar year perspective before that part of the industry is well. So it's hard to, you know, it's, so it depends on your time horizon, Kenny. If you're mm-hmm. saying within the next two years, is there a glimmer of hope? The answer is yes. If Not you're right. hoping <laughs> that before Christmas, things are going to be better, I would say highly unlikely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could they get worse? Um, I don't know. Things are pretty bad right now and pretty tough. I don't know that they're going to get worse per se, but considering the shortage of microchips, the shortage of plastics, the shortage of glass, the shortage of precious metals, some of them will get healthier sooner than others. Mm-hmm. But if your product uses all of those, mm-hmm. good luck, right? Yeah. Because, um, and you know, a lot of these automation products that we're in, at least two or three of those categories are in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got to have all of them going well for us to say, hey, life feels good or life feels more normal. As you guys know, I'm one of those cup is half full kind of guys. But mm-hmm. I think it's going to be tough sledding probably until late spring of next mm-hmm. year. And and I think what Brian said there is key, too, in that we didn't get into this in a month and we're not getting out of it in a month or two. Yeah. Or three, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a slow recovery. We're going to recover one family at a time, um, one one portion of the portfolio at a time, um, until we get ourselves back to a healthy inventory position and a place where we have reliable transit times. You know, mm-hmm. and and the factories are clicking along at full capacity. It, it's not going to happen the same way it didn't happen to us quickly. We've kind of slid into this situation, one shortage at a time. If you yeah. think about it, it's it's the same analogy that Julie just gave. Things aren't really normal until that entire supply chain is mm-hmm. full again, right? And mm-hmm. it took it took literally a year to drain that supply chain to get us yeah. where we are. It'll take probably similar time frame to get that fully primed, where all the different levels of supply are in good shape. shape. You know, the distributors are healthy. The the raw material manufacturers are healthy. You know, all those different layers, you you tend to lose track of all the layers where materials are kept before it ends up all the way to the end user. All of those levels got to get healthy for us to truly be healthy. And we laugh about that because when our factories will say, hey, we're healthy, they mean that they're shipping at their normal right. capacity. Mm-hmm. But if there's nothing in stock, we're not healthy. <laughs> You know we're I mean? not healthy is, until yeah. the customer feels the impact of that yeah. recovery, right? Yeah. Not when the factory gets back up to full capacity, not when the components arrive such that they can build enough to cover the backlog. We're healthy when the customer experience is a healthy one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a while, Carrie and Kenny, before we feel that. And what I can say um, is that when we, from a planning perspective, will start to feel as though we're on that upswing, is when the number of finished good parts that are impacted by component shortages starts to decrease rather than increase, Mm -hmm. right? That's, Mm -hmm. That's kind of our measure. And we're not there yet. We are not in a place where we're seeing that count of materials impacted get smaller. So at this very moment in time, not much of a glimmer, 
Um, but, but like you said, Carrie, if we talk again in six months, I'm hopeful mm -hmm. that we'll be seeing some glimmers, not that yep. we will be where we want to be, but that we won't be on the downward slide anymore. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you guys didn't give us any bright, shining good news, but I still feel optimistic. I feel like every time I learn more and you can understand, I think it helps. So really appreciate you guys taking the time to explain all of this. Um, to, to us and to our listeners. And like you said, we'd love to have you guys back maybe, you know, six months. What did we learn? What's new? What's the new toilet paper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed English muffins are on short supply. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. <laughs> I'm going to go out and buy a whole bunch now. Yeah. Just, just put them in your case. freezer. Well, right next to the toilet paper, right? Then I'm going to be stuck with the cinnamon raisin again, which is yeah. not good. <laughs> Listen, when there's a shortage, you'll start liking raisins. That <laughs> All right, but we would be remiss if we didn't let you guys go without a little bit of trivia. So I have two trivia questions for you that are supply chain related, but but fun. So the first question I have is, what was the contents of the very first air cargo shipment? And it is a it's a material. It's a material would be my clue. Was it alive? No, it is, a, it is a material to make something else. In the history of all air freight since Correct. the beginning of time. Okay. Yep. I'll give you guys another hint. Think of the, the birthplace of aviation. Yeah. Okay. Um, Brian, I'm totally letting you take I this I don't know. I, I, I promise the second question is easier. Yes. Maybe. Maybe well, a little easier. Birthplace of aviation was the state of North Carolina. Oh, shoot. Actually, you'll get some people from Ohio who would argue with Oh, you. I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question. So in 1910, 200 pounds of silk was sent from Dayton yeah. to oh, gosh. via air freight. That's a good one. That's a good oh. one. So bring that up in your next team meeting. See if anybody's right. really on the on the supply chain yeah. trip. The modern side. Silk Road. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right. All and right. the second question, Brian kind of mentioned it a little bit. Do you know when the Suez Canal construction was finished? Oh, 1967? Earlier. Mm. Give you one more guess. And I'll say it's between 1840 and 1860. Jeez. That, it's been, oh, that, oh, I was thinking of the Panama Canal. That's different. Oh, Suez Canal. Oh, yeah, it's much older. Much older. I, 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 1894. 1859, September 25th. 1859. 1859. Yep. And, and maybe next time in six months, I I'll give you guys multiple choice. Those were kind of <laughs> Those were, those were tough, tough questions. <laughs> I was hoping for a layup there. Yeah. What, uh, that was not that. a layup. No. <laughs> I'm interested to know what kind of tools they used in that year to dig said canal. Probably yeah. the same. It was the same people building the pyramids, you know. <laughs> no ships to be stuck there, right? Well, no I ships think, at I, think, I think ending it with the tough trivia was a little cruel, but we still enjoyed <laughs> this. Yeah. I'm sure I speak for Carrie. We appreciate the conversation. This was fantastic. Very informative for us and our, our listeners. And, and we do appreciate your guys' time. 
you know, we feel much more educated about the current supply chain situation. And I like, I like Carrie's idea. Let's get together in six months again and let's uh, come up for air and see, see where we're at. And I'll tell you, if something changes dramatically that it's worthy of us getting together sooner, we'll let you know. Yep, awesome. Absolutely. That'd be great. All right. Thanks for having us guys. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining Carrie and me for the Operation Automation Podcast. If you have topics you'd like to hear discussed on future episodes, please send them to our email address, omronnow at omron.com with podcast idea in the subject line. Also, if you'd like to submit a song to us, we are looking for intro and outro music options. This can be submitted to the same email. Finally, all the cool things you learn on this podcast can be found at automation.omron.com. So until next time, we put the fun in factory automation. Automation.